Right. Welcome to another philosophical conversation. I'm here with two friends of the channel, David McCarricker and Ann Snellgrove, and we're here to discuss a new course that is on offer with Theory Underground, which starts Sunday, June 11th. It will run for six months. However, they'll be meeting only once per month, so not a big time commitment, but also stretched out over a long time, six months, uh, meeting on the second Sunday of every month. And the course is titled Digital Literacy and Critical Media Theory. There'll be links in the description to all of that below. And the point of the course Digital Literacy and Critical Media Theory will be to one, focus on the foundations of media theory, partially through the work of Marshall McLuhan, but also to give a foundation which helps people understand critical media theory. And without that background in media theory and without that foundation of McLuhan, the possibility of engaging in critical media theory and the possibility of cultivating digital literacy is perhaps an impossible task. So a much needed course, especially in the context of a hyper-digital, hyper-connected uh, society where media is more and more infiltrating and perhaps in a McLuhan sense, distorting and playing with our senses in a way mm. that takes us away from our normal sense of mediacy as we would perhaps have existed throughout most of our pre-human history. So welcome, or pre-history, as you say. So welcome both Dave and Anne. Uh, maybe just introduce yourselves, give a little bit of overview of what's going on with this course, and then we'll jump into a conversation which will primarily be focused on an interview with Marshall McLuhan from 1969. Right. Well, Anne, would you like to start? Sure, yeah. Um, my name is Anne Snellgrove. I am Dave's current fiance, but also just a fellow traveler in the world of theory and theory underground. I have helped teach one course previously with theory underground, the idea of the university. Um, and I'm really excited to be a co-teacher for this course as well. The kind of current fiance. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know. Say it's like <laughs> I like I've had a whole string of fiancés. You're right. right yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm Dave's fourth fiance. No, I'm Dave's only fiance. Um, I don't know, because we're not gonna be fiancés for forever, I guess. Um, anyways, I the what I offer to this course is kind of a so while Dave will be tackling more of the theory and philosophy, I'll be tackling more of the social science and practical application side of this course because we feel that with something like digital literacy and critical media theory that is very, very relevant to our everyday lives. We need to give people something to walk away with, something to apply to their lives that is based in the, the values and the understanding of the theory, but then has that practical application. So I've been, you know, preparing and reading books such as Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman, which relies heavily on McLuhan, as well as books like um, Reclaiming Conversation by Sherry Turkle and Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport all of which kind of offer some everyday things that you can implement into your life. Um, and so that is kind of what I bring. I also think I'm bringing this perspective of someone who is a bit younger, part of Gen Z, who grew up from, you know, the age of 10, 11 with Instagram, with an iPad accessible to me at all hours of the day, you know, 
my parents, none of our parents could have known. We were really the first group of like young children to have this stuff in our bedrooms, in our hands. And so I just have this perspective and have kind of struggled with this relationship my whole life. And so I'm excited to explore that with Dave and get some of this theoretical basis um, that I think is necessary for this conversation. Thank you. Yes. And I guess, yeah, to, I am, I am Anne's current fiance. Um, my name is David McCarricker. I'm the founder of Theory Underground and the, well, I guess I'll say two things first about Theory Underground, that it is a lecture course gated social media site and publishing house by and for working class intellectuals, autodidacts and renegade academics or what we call PMCs. And uh, the reason we're current fiancés is because we're really coming up on the, the wedding date quickly. So we just moved back from Mexico where we've been for the last five months. And, uh, and now it's just like, we've got three red, uh, we've got multiple weddings from uh, of friends and family to attend in different states. And then we go to our own. And so everything's weddings right now. But um, on the theory underground side, I've got the being in time research cohort getting ready to get going right now. So I'm doing pre-course lectures on that. And the digital literacy and critical media theory thing is really for our own sanity's sake. And when I say are, I do mean myself and Anne, but also other people who might feel like they've got some sanity to try to either maintain or reclaim, right? And so we, we're all um, saturated in new forms of media and we don't know what the implications, ramifications uh, or effects of that really might mean just yet. Right. This is one of the things that McLuhan is keen on is that you do, you don't know until afterwards. Right. Like the people who were living in the midst of the Gutenberg uh, revolution, they probably didn't think that Martin Luther and Protestantism was would have been impossible without that revolution in printing. Right. But um, the the written word has always had a profound impact on societies that adopted or discovered it. And uh, one of the things McLuhan talks about in that in that interview that we've all read, uh, which is the one that uh, Cadell had referenced, uh, it's it's this fantastic interview that he does with Playboy actually in 1969, which is kind of ironic. Um, he he talks about how the phonetic alphabet itself is a is a form of it's a it's a kind of medium that fundamentally alters the perception and ability to interpret uh and experience reality um and so the phonetic alphabet is is, is itself um this innovation then the printing press is obviously another profound innovation um and but and so that's what he means by media Right. When he's talking about media, he's talking about any technology that extends any of our senses. And so it's like we are hooked in through our central nervous system into apparatuses of various forms of media or mediums. I, I like to say mediums because it gets away from the idea of like news media. Right. It, it's it's grammatically incorrect. But the point is, is like it's the plural form media is supposed to be the plural form 
of medium. But because media tends to just mean the news, um, I just say mediums because it's it's like, okay, there's different kinds of mediums, the pen and the paper. This is a medium for communicating, right? But so is the radio, so is the television. Obviously, so is every one of the platforms and websites and various kinds of things that we find ourselves uh, hooked into through screens. And so um, there's a, a variety of implications and effects and we're going to try to figure out what those are because in the same way that we might not have known uh, people at the time of Martin Luther might not have realized what they were in the midst of with the rise of nationalism, which was predicated on print, uh, on uh, on the distribution of, of newspapers, really. Um, we don't know what we're in the midst of now. And so we feel that though, at like this deep visceral level, we feel it. And so I kind of want to turn it back over to Anne to talk a little bit more about the 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 idea that we're trying to salvage or maintain our sanity like what does this course have to do with trying to salvage or maintain our sanity what is it that uh we're we're kind of responding to at the level of of how we feel about these mediums that we're using yeah you know i think most of us can recognize that there is some sort of negative impact of you know, social media, the hyper politicized and polarized news media, you know, having our iPhones and, and Facebook and TikTok and all of these things. I think we can all kind of like we inherently just feel like, oh, this isn't right. I feel bad when I sit and scroll for hours, even just the physical uh, neg like negative outcomes of that, Your, the eye strain, the headaches when you have to sit on your computer and work all day, like the, the physical pain that comes from that. And so we all kind of have, I think, somewhat of an awareness that this isn't maybe how humans are supposed to be living our lives. But as McLuhan says, since everything's happening so fast, and at the time that he, you know, was doing this interview back in this in the 60s and late 60s, things were going fast. Well, today it seems like everything has accelerated even more since when he was writing and, and talking about all of this. And so, you know, with that, I think we really want to slow down with, with the way that we're running this course. And we want to analyze the values of kind of what it means to be human, really understand how exactly this media works, because it's, it's not enough to just say, oh, well, we kind of know that it's bad. Like we want to understand why this is bad, what this is doing to us as human beings, how it's affecting our relationships with others, our relationship with ourself, our mental health, our physical health, all of these things that I think we're almost there. We're almost there, but there's there's a reason that everyone is, no one's made any sort of real change. There hasn't been any real changes pushed in the government in the United States to kind of regulate this stuff. People try and try oh, I'm going to break this addiction. I'm going to change my life. I, I've tried for, you know, the last 10 years. Okay. This week, I'm never going to use, I'm never going to use social media again. And that's been going on like every month. I'm like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And so we need, I think that foundation that comes from theory and philosophy to understand our lives with the technology and the media, and then understand our lives without it and how we can find sort of a, a, hap a happy medium. Um, but how we can live with it and use it to help our lives without, you know, taking complete control. 
which, you know, we're, we're kind of, you can get into like all the conspiracy theories about, oh, China gave us TikTok to brainwash us, whatever. Um, but I think we do have as, as humans, you know, as much as it feels like, oh, it's an addiction. I can never get away from it. I need it for my work, for my social life. We have some control and some power over how and when we use the, these media. So. Hmm. Yeah, no, fantastic. And I, th I like the, the perspective you bring in, and I think it is valuable for anyone who is going to take the course um, to know that there is someone in, in Gen Z who's, who does offer a different perspective. I think Dave and I are probably classified as millennials. And I think I still remember, you know, I, 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 think, I think I was in kindergarten when I got my first video game system. I think I was maybe a teenager. Yeah, like maybe borderline teenager when I got the first computer. Um, and I'd imagine that has an impact, not only the fact that the age in which we come into contact with these machines, but also uh, the quality of the machines themselves and the amount of content available, like, you know, the internet before social media versus, you know, like, for example, I think I got Facebook when I was in college, right? So I didn't have social media in high school. And I'd imagine being in social, in, in a, immersed in social media while you're going through school at that age is a totally different experience and a totally disorienting experience. And I have to say that as it relates to like sort of the stuff Dave and I are doing with, you know, the online education platforms, um, we have no idea what's going on, really. I mean, we're just sort of freestyling and going along the way. Um, but we don't know the consequences of these mediums. We're sort of caught up in this storm um, of the, I guess, what McLuhan would call electronic apparatuses. And I don't think anyone would be outraged by some of the claims that McLuhan made in regards to basically the theory of media having a huge impact on our psychology. But, you know, one of the strange things, you know, when we get into this article of Marshall McLuhan's uh, interview from 1969, I mean, basically his major basic thesis is that all media in and of themselves and regardless of the messages they communicate, exert a compelling influence on man and society. And it's like, who doesn't believe that now? Like, and at the same time in the interview, you know, they're saying that the old guard humanists uh, and outrage scholars were really upset at McLuhan's basic thesis. So, you know, yeah. where do you think, you know, we should be situating McLuhan in regards to modern media ecology? And why do you think there was such a dramatic resistance to these ideas when McLuhan came out? Maybe start with you there, Dave. Yeah, that's, you know, it's interesting because I think that the, there was even tremendous pushback against these kinds of claims even just seven years ago. Um, I was giving lectures on the impact of technology um, and, and, and media, and I wasn't doing it from a McLuhanite basis just yet. Um, I was drawing from Kierkegaard and Heidegger and some popular books about 
uh, technology such as Sherry Turkle's Reclaiming Conversation. Um, and, and, and really just my own experience because um, I, you know, coming from a homeschool background, I've always felt like, well, the things that everyone else kind of takes for granted about how social things work, those don't just come naturally. Those don't just make, those don't just make sense. Um, and, you know, I have, uh, I know a lot of other homeschoolers and a lot of them uh, kind of just don't try too hard to to learn how to socialize with different kinds of people from different kinds of backgrounds. Um, I've always tried to understand where people are coming from. And so, but, but, but one of the things that this, this kind of background gives me, I think is some kind of like outsider insight into the culture that I'm in. And one of the things that I saw uh, was texting going from texting, going from phone calls to texting to social media, right? Like I, I, that was a very, very interesting movement to experience, right? Because there was just a time when it was just all phone calls, right? I guess there was also like AOL messenger and stuff like that uh, for some people, but the, then all of a sudden everybody's texting, right? And uh, most of that's being done on those those old keyboards, right? Or those old, just like the actual the phone number pad. Uh, and then the shift to smartphones happens like over the course of like five or six years. And people changed. And I could see that people changed, but it didn't seem like people were aware that they had changed. And so that's what kind of got me interested in philosophy of technology. So then when I went to college and I was studying philosophy, I was like, oh, I love this stuff. I love this philosophy stuff. I wonder if it has anything to say about technology. So I start looking into it there and I start thinking about the public or how Heidegger talks about Das Mann. And I start thinking about how the dynamics of, well, like, so with Das Mann, for instance, there's this tendency for three factors to cause like this downward pulling motion um, that makes everything more superficial just in general conversation. And that is superficially detached curiosity, right? It's non-committal curiosity. It's just kind of like, oh, what's that? Passing interests. It just wants to be, it wants to be entertained, but it doesn't want to commit and go in depth, right? So that's curiosity in that sense combined with speaking in ambiguous terms, right? Throwing around words, but not unpacking their meanings. And then the other one is chit-chat, like idle chatter, kind of just uh, bullshitting or, uh, or or a bull session. It's, it's kind of like what guys do when they're at the pub or whatever. It's like a bull session. It's like, it's just kind of, you're shooting the shit, which is okay. And of course people do this in a lot of different ways, but there's a problem when those three things are all operating and you take that for granted as like, well, that's a human experience. That's just how we communicate. That's just what we are. And it's like, no, that's not just what we are. That is like base camp. And we can scale the heights to have more genuine conversations, to get more in-depth uh, and intimate understandings of the subject matters or of or just, uh, of the other people in the conversation. And so, um, the thing is, is like that, th that interplay of those three factors, ambiguity, idle chatter, and curiosity pulling us downwards, obviously that's accelerated and normalized in a crazy way by something like Facebook or MySpace before it, 
or Twitter now or TikTok, of course. And so, which is obviously TikTok's like the fastest version of all of those. And so uh, this was already something I was talking about. I didn't have the McLuhanite basis. And so this is why before we started recording this, I was talking about how critical media theory can't really get underway properly without a basis in McLuhan because he's the father of media theory itself. And as the father of media theory, he's the one who really just drives home this point that these aren't just interfaces that we use. This isn't just something that mediates perception. It's not just something that makes present something far away. That's all interesting as well. But the most important thing is that it's an actual extension of us. He calls it the extensions of man, right? And to think about writing as an extension of man, to think about all of these as basically like expansion packs added to the game of what it means to be a human. It's interesting. And my position has never been one of that's purely pessimistic or negative, but I do take the critical standpoint primarily. And I think for the most part, just because other people don't want to think about the negative implications, right? Now, that's kind of changing. And in the last uh, five years, especially, it's become quite common to hear people talk about algorithmic, um, you know, uh, the algorithmic selection effect, the the siloing, the echo chambers, the people will say things like tribalism or in groups or out groups, you know, but various kinds of otherization that occur on that on that basis. Um, and so people are kind of figuring out that there's something going on there to the point where now if I say that this stuff has this big impact on us, like you're all saying, we're not going to get pushback the same way that we used to. But what, at conferences like seven years ago, I would talk about this and people seemed unable to even process. And now maybe this was the fault of my communication style, but they actually seemed unable to tarry with the negative, to really think about the negative implications because they were so invested in being for technological progress and being for social media. And a lot of it's because academics are baby boomers in these kind of conference environments that I was in. And a, a lot of baby boomers around that time, seven to 10 years ago, had only recently started using social media. And late adopters to social media tend to be its most sort of uncritical supporters, just in my experience. I've got no data to back this up beyond my own experience. And so, you know, take it with a grain of salt, but I seem to have noticed like this shift from uh, late adopters being uncritically supportive to then being, oh, it's bad and I'm addicted to it and it sucks and it's ruining our relationships, but at least I get to see my grandkids. So here I am, I'm still here, which means that the shift happened from going from optimist to pessimist. But one of the things that I'm going to be talking about throughout this course is that this is a false binary. That the, 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 the division between optimism and pessimism is a division between moods, right? Which moods reveal things, right? Like they definitely show us stuff, but technology is neither optimistic or pessimistic. We don't have to be, we don't have to choose a side in this, in this binary. We have to understand it though. Right. Because insofar as there are good things, we're not going to be able to get those good things or take advantage of them. 
if we don't think about media critically. And insofar as there are negative things, if we're not thinking about media critically, we don't realize how those patterns are playing themselves out on us, reshaping us, reprogramming us at the most intimate level. So that's why critical media theory has to be the basis for digital literacy. Yeah. And I think McLuhan in the interview has kind of a similar um, idea in terms of it's not all negative. I think the interviewer at one point even asked in relation to the telegraph. So are you, are you saying the, that the invention of the telegraph like really just was bad overall a net negative for humanity? And he said, well, no, of course, of course, it's not just net negative and there are positives that come from it, but we have to kind of critically understand those negatives. And I think that, you know, you had asked, how do we situate McLuhan in, in the current conversation? And we can sit here and we can critique TikTok, Facebook, the news, all of this technology on its own. But I think something that McLuhan does that is so essential to this conversation is he he theorize, theorizes about and explores, as he calls it, he calls himself right an explorer in this field, the humanity in relation, humans in relation to this technology. We're not just looking at us and then the technology. It is the interplay between us, the relationship that we have with the technology that the technology has with us. And I think that is just so foundational to this conversation because, because as we can get to, and as he gets to in the interview, it is an extension of ourselves. It radically changes. Yeah. Our, how we structure our lives, our values as a society, as a culture. And so we have to understand he, he, he's, he's, he's theorizing about humanity just as much as the technology, not just the technology. All right, fantastic. I mean, I just want to start off with sort of bringing us back to, I think, an important observation Dave made as an example of that transition that occurred maybe even before, um, you know, you were even aware of it and between phone calls, texting and social media, because I still remember when I was a kid, it was it was all phone calls. Um, even like I remember as a kid, it was going around and knocking on each other's doors. Like, uh, that's, a uh, that's old. School. No, it's actually kind of like, it's considered like some people, if you do that now, they'd be like, Oh, no, you that's a big no, no. That, that would be, that would be seen as insane. Like, like there's this guy who keeps on knocking on our door. Like, but no way. Like, like when we were kids, like back when I was a boy, we would like, literally go door to door like we would go like we would say like let's go call on people and by let's go call on people we would mean let's go knock and see if jimmy's home right and 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 let's see if he's up to go play hide and seek or whatever like that would be perceived as a huge rule violation or an unspoken implicit rule violation if you were to do that today and it's just so strange today because a lot of the friends a lot of the friends I have, I mean, are, I don't know, in Mexico, for example, <laughs> right? Like, right. And, and like, let's go call on Dave, right. Is, is a, a zoom call, right? Like, and so, so this is very, this is in some sense, it's, it, it's, it's a very practical um, example where you can see our senses literally becoming extended towards not just our immediate body, but around the globe. And so now you have all human beings who are not just sensory 
limited to a sort of sensory sphere, which is very close to the tribe and very close to the body, but where the body and the tribe has become planetary and the body and the tribe has become truly global in, in scope and time and space become less relevant in, in, in some sense. And so this is incredibly disorienting and this is incredibly transformative. Um, and creates all sorts of weird dynamics that probably we have no capacity to really think about. Um, so when you think about some of the foundations of McLuhan's ideas, like there are some, you know, some of the common statements like the medium is the message, uh, some, some other ideas like, like this, or uh, how do you think he gives us the tools to engage with new critical media theory? Like you're saying, we need a foundation in McLuhan before we can even engage in critical media theory and, and digital literacy today? I think that's a like the perfect jumping off point actually to the difference between uh, critical media theory and media theory in this McLuhanite sense. He is, he kind of was back and forth at, between optimism and, and sort of pessimism, but he never had a critique of capital right he considered him i mean if you if you read understanding media pretty early into the book he actually says that what he is seeing in media proves marx wrong in terms of the priority of base over superstructure right so basically for people who don't get the jargon there the base is the productive manufacturing base of society right where everything comes from as opposed to the superstructure which is the culture right well the the priority of base over superstructure in traditional worldview marxism is to say we shouldn't focus on cultural things you know we shouldn't uh, yes we use the 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 newspaper we use the written word in the printing press to uh, to, to distribute propaganda, but the propaganda always is supposed to be drawing people's attention back to the productive base and the relations of production that set up society in a class formation, right? And so the, the goal is obviously being to raise workers' consciousness of their oppression so that they will organize for the revolution. Okay, well, the problem with this, McLuhan says, is that media it's not just like a vehicle for words that are purely ideological, right? It's actually something that tr fundamentally transforms our very subjectivity itself, right? And so he, what he says is that with the digitalization, there's been a, a reversal of priority so that there is now um, uh, superstructure is overdetermining the base in, in this like reversal. Um, and I admit to not being an expert on McLuhan. Um, to me, the, the, there's a big question as far as like how far he actually takes his engagement with Marx. And until I've read everything he's written multiple times, you know, who knows? But for now, I can say that in multiple places, I have seen him saying this thing about Marx. And it makes it seem like Marx was completely unaware of how much we are impacted by technology. I think Marx would probably just agree with McLuhan, at least as far as 
like the understanding that in human nature, insofar as we have a nature, is the augmentation of our nature through technological means. And I think that both of them see that. So um, getting the two of them to talk to one another is really important to me. But all of this I just said as like a sort of uh, to lay the groundwork to just say there is a sort of missed opportunity between um, the critique of political economy from Marx and McLuhan's uh, media theory that this critique from the McLuhan position of worldview Marxism, it's interesting, but worldview Marxism for me, it's just, it's, it's already, I, we don't have to take it very seriously, right? It's like a, it's like a hundred year old, 150 year old um, response to a very specific situation uh, that was trying to organize an actual working class that was aware of itself, like the industrial proletariat that had not been fragmented yet. And this was all prior to the, the emergence and construction of the professional managerial class. So it's a, it's a different situation. It's, in, it's interesting historically. But um, the most important thing from Marx is his critique of political economy. And I just don't know that uh, McLuhan had actually read Capital, right? much less like the 1844 manuscripts. So from, from my position as a sort of post-Marxist, um, I'm profoundly impacted by Marx. I want to get McLuhan and Marx to talk. Now, the problem with not having a critique of capitalism, much less like a real critique of power from the McLuhan position, it's not that much of a problem for what he's doing, but it's a problem for what we're doing, or at least what I'm doing. And so... Um, this idea of the global village being like one of the positive aspects of what's coming out of um, these developments with digitalization, it's 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 hard for me to to look at it and take it very seriously because there nothing nothing shows us that there's an actual global village occurring like you it, it like. We could say there's a, a billion villages occurring, but that's a billion villages. That's not a village, right? This idea that we all start to find our common humanity through the internet, I don't think so. I think that we all start to find ourselves as belonging to micro niche consume, boutique consumer identities, right? And that's actually what we're what we're all doing here. With philosophy and theory it's a boutique consumer identity on the internet obviously we hope that it's more than just that obviously we hope that we're doing so much more than just that and we're trying to actually engage with the world in some more rigorous way that doesn't just repeat what happens with the insularity of academia but i guess that just my main point is that the way that power has played out and the way that capitalism works on the internet is not to make it so that we're all this part of this big collective now. No, it's it's we're becoming increasingly hyper niche boutique consumer identities. So I, I don't I wonder though uh how your work on the global brain has uh developed in 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 in, in with McLuhan or like how you've thought with McLuhan. I know you've kind of referenced that before. And so I wonder if you could say something about that, Cadell. Like is this yeah, something sure. that you're picking up on or or do you have a different angle on it? No, yeah, I I can I can jump in here. Um so one of the 
weird things in my reading of, of this paper on McLuhan is that he has this um, hypothesis that it's the phonetic alphabet writing basically, which takes us away from our senses. And, and he has, in my view, a structure, uh, a metaphysical structure as a consequence of this, which reminds me a lot of Marxism in the sense of um, the original primitive communism, um, where we were one with our senses, we were one with our nature, and then we fell into history. We fell into to, to different, mo in Marxist terms, we fell into different modes of, of I guess, uh, slavery and exploitation and feudal society. In McLuhan's terms, we fell into an outsized impact of vision and 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 writing and 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 literacy, and then they both have this same idea that we're going back towards some global harmony, which will re-establish the original primitive condition. So, like Marx would have the idea that world communism is re-establishing on a global level primitive communism. And McLuhan has this idea that the global village is somehow reestablishing the original tribal uh, nature that we had um, before falling into history. So that structure is very similar. And I'm skeptical of both structures precisely because I feel like the asymmetry didn't happen in, in history with writing, but the asymmetry happened with the emergence of language as such. So it's not just that writing the phonetic alphabet uh, creates this gap or creates this uh, asymmetry, this discord in ourselves, but language as such, the signifier as such creates the discord and disrupts our senses primordially. And as a consequence of that, we should be very careful of falling into this narrative teleology where we're heading towards some global harmony. Um, I, I don't like this idea of heading towards some global harmony. I think what we're doing is we're heading towards some imminent global antagonism. And I think that's, you know, like, for example, the idea of the global village, it's, it's, I would say it's more like, I don't know what, like, we're heading into, well, also in regards to the idea of a, a global village is like in primitive communism, so to speak, in hunter-gatherer society, uh, conflict was actually quite high. It was different, but conflict was was high. I mean, I would imagine in a global village, what we're going to see is out is is all new forms of 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 competition, and I think that's indeed what we are seeing in regards to like just what you were saying about our activity here, Dave, in regards to like theory underground philosophy portal, where you're going to see all sorts of new types of digital competition in establishing a new world. And the question is, how do we establish networks of cooperation um, in, this, in, this, um, in this landscape? Because it's very difficult because we're very pulled away from our bodies. We haven't had physical interaction. And, and as a consequence of that, you know, basically there's this play of virtual identities, which can become very um, in some sense, pathological, especially without a critique of capital and without a critique of power. Um, so I'm glad that you're bringing that angle to McLuhan because I think that is an angle that is is missing. There is a type of utopianization of um, the electronic media. And even in this article, he says, um, almost like this desire to exist in a medium beyond language 
or like with no language, like he says that in this. So I guess, I don't know if that answers your question, but I do see both the, like if I could bring it into a summary, I would say both the ideas of world communism and the ideas of the global village to me repeat an ideological structure which we should be deeply critical of on the level of this idea of a holistic harmony which eliminates antagonism. And I think that what's at the heart of it is the origin of language and the way in which the discord or the antagonism is at the heart of our being in language. And the, the, the task of thought is to think with language as opposed to thinking out of language, right? To try to get out of it in some way. So I'll throw that back to you and then we'll get Anne's perspective on this. Yeah, I'll actually, I was thinking, I'm gonna just set Anne up here to talk about what she understands digital literacy to be as opposed to what it's typically, how it's typically taught. but. To, to set her up, I wanted to read a quote um, because I I do try to read at least one or two quotes every live stream in the last, uh, like this is a more recent thing, but I'm just trying to, to, to be a little bit more textual and to allow the voice of the person that we're talking about to kind of come through. And as I said yesterday, like even when it's translated from German into English, the voice, something about the, about that voice still carries through. Um, but the nice thing about McLuhan is actually he's writing in English. And so you get it, you get it straight here, folks. He's, he's a Canadian, actually. He's like the one philosopher from, from Canada, which is, you know, fantastic. He's, he's, uh, I, I actually that maybe that's not fair. There's a lot of philosophers in Canada, but he's the one that's the Canada's like most well known for. And so, um, I want to see, I've got two quotes here. Um, yeah, this is the one. In the past, the effects of media were experienced more gradually, allowing the individual and society to absorb and cushion their impact to some degree. Today, in the electronic age of instantaneous communication, I believe that our survival, and at the very least, our comfort and happiness, is predicated on understanding the nature of our new environment, because unlike previous environmental changes, the electric media constitute a total and near instantaneous transformation of culture, values, and attitudes. So he's saying the very possibility of being optimistic depends on our ability to educate ourselves about these things that we're using. He goes on, this upheaval generates great pain and identity loss which can be ameliorated only through a conscious awareness of its dynamics. If we understand the revolutionary transformations caused by new media, we can anticipate and control them. But if we continue in our self-induced subliminal trance, we will be their slaves. I'm going to actually keep going here because there's like this, this is actually from a little bit later in the text, but this is absolutely crucial because we're getting, we're getting into the idea of the need to understand these transformations and how we're going to be slaves if we cannot do that. He's, then he says, because of today's terrific speed up of information moving, we have a chance to apprehend, predict, and influence the environmental forces shaping us and thus win back control of our own destinies. The new extensions of man and the environment they generate are the central manifestations of the evolutionary process, and yet we still cannot free ourselves of the delusion that it is how a medium is used that counts rather than what it does to us 
and with us. This is the zombie stance of the technological idiot. It's to escape this narcissist's trance that I've tried to trace and reveal the impact of media on man from the beginning of, of recorded time to the present. And so, in a sense, I think this is, we do take this that he's saying very seriously, and it's something we're trying to practice in our own lives. And so, I think that that's a nice tie-in to how Anne is conceptualizing digital literacy. Would you agree, Anne? Yeah, I think so. Um, and so, I want to, you know, before talking about digital literacy, I want to provide the the Google definition of literacy which is the ability to read and write. So under that definition, pretty much anyone over the age of five is literate, can read and write. But Dave has offered this definition or kind of changed the definition of literacy by, by adding the word functional. Are you functionally literate? So, you know, Dave would argue that a lot of people in our society today are functionally illiterate in the sense that Yes, they can read and write for their jobs, they can read the newspaper, they can watch the newspaper, but functionally illiterate in the sense that they can't pick up a hard book and really struggle with it and tarry with it and focus on it. Um, and so in the same vein, you know, the Wikipedia definition of digital literacy is an individual's ability to find, evaluate, and communicate information by utilizing typing or digital media platforms. So under that definition, both of my grandmas are digitally literate in the sense that they know how to text and they know how to, you know, use Google pictures and, and whatnot. But in the same way that you we're not really considering someone to be totally literate if they can't really struggle with and understand text. We want to work with a new definition of digital literacy in the sense that it's not just being able to use the technology, but it's being able to understand the digital technology, under, critically understand it, how it affects our lives, how to use it in a beneficial way, how to avoid using it in negative ways. Um, and so that's kind of this distinction that I think people think digital literacy, like when in, in school, for example, in high school, we were all required to take some sort of class that was like kind of getting the basics of like Microsoft and Word. And it, it is, um, kind of thought of as, oh, a, a digital literacy class. You're learning how to be literate in this stuff, but it's just very surface level. You know how to use it. I've never been given a class on, you know, using technology that actually goes into the philosophy of the technology or really makes you think about why we're using this technology, how we, you know, used to go about in the instance of Excel or Word, how we used to go about typing information and, and organizing information into spreadsheets. We never have this greater understanding of our historical relationship to what we're doing and then in relation to other modes of technology, other mediums. Um, and so that's what we want to focus on in this class is not just, oh, do you know how to use it? But do you understand why you're using it and how you're using it? Um, I also want to really quick go back to this conversation about kind of the the global community that is brought about by this technology because something that Neil Postman offers in this discourse that I think is really interesting is he talks about this difference between you know where where people's focus was in the age of typography and the age of you know like literacy and where everyone in the especially he's he's mostly focusing on the United States um during like the 17th through the 19th centuries. 
but there was a time in the age of typography, the typographic man where everyone knew how to read, everyone was reading books, the pamphlets, the newspapers, everyone was kind of following the, the local discourse. And so everyone had this deep, rich understanding of what was going on nationally, sometimes, especially in the case of like the Lincoln-Douglas debates, where they were going all over the country giving like three, four, five, six, even seven hour lectures and um, debates. And people could follow that. So that was kind of the extent of the national connection and the national discourse that people followed and, and had a grasp on. But mostly people knew what was going on locally. They were very locally connected. Everyone had a, kind of had this basis in the text, in the news. The news was relevant. Um, whereas with the introduction of the telegraph, now all of a sudden someone in Maine could communicate with someone in Texas and postman you know, posits the question of, well, why do people in Maine and Texas really need to communicate with each other? You know, why does someone in Texas need to know about the shooting that happened in Maine or the robbery that happened in North Carolina? And I think that kind of just gets to what, what you two were both talking about is, yeah, we, we know what's going on locally or globally, but what can we actually do about it? You know, is there a benefit to having all this knowledge and, and today I think it's even more exacerbated than when Postman and McLuhan were writing in the sense that you can get on TikTok and see 10 different global issues going on at the same time, but we actually can't do anything about it. And Postman talks about this, how the, what did he call it? The information action ratio, I think is what he called it, changed with the introduction of the telegraph. So we used to be able to, you know, back, um, before the Telegraph, when everything was kind of in local newspapers, we'd get a piece of information and we could take immediate action. Oh, there was this, you know, earthquake or something that happened right here on this street, or this building is being torn down. I'm going to avoid that street. Whereas, oh, this thing is happening in Maine. This thing is happening in the UK. This thing is happening in Australia. Okay, that doesn't change anything radical about my day. Um, and so I just think that was like kind of an interesting, interesting contribution to this is, yeah, what and then how is that shaping us in our psyches? And I, I almost when I was reading this, I was thinking it almost makes us like apathetic to any sort of action because we're so used to reading news that we can't do anything about. And that obviously goes into critiques of like hegemony, ideology, capitalism, all of that goes into play with with our ability to feel like we can make social change but then when we're being bombarded with news that yeah it's i like i guess it's it's good to be a globally connected citizen and know what's going on but at what point is it too much at what point are we just overwhelmed with information to where we can't even focus on or, or comprehend or feel any sort of empathy towards local situations and then solve those it's like just in Reno I was driving down the street the other day and it was like riddled with potholes and I'm like that feels like an important issue that we could all as a community like rally behind like let's clear the potholes in our community but no one's writing newspaper articles about that it's oh Biden this oh Ukraine war that okay maybe that's useful maybe that's important but I as someone living in Reno Nevada or in Mexico can't really help that a fantastic point, Anne, and and I just want to sort of say that 
you know, one of the craziest things about, um, you know, the internet and our communication mediums is that it, it takes us from, you know, to me, it's like this collision between our evolutionary drives and the global digital where we are evolutionarily wired and programmed for, you know, uh, discerning relevance within a tribe of 200 people, right? So, hey, uh, our tribe has a problem with the proverbial potholes, right? Like, but when uh, our tribe becomes all of a sudden in the span of like two decades, when our tribe becomes 7 billion, 8 billion people, uh, the problem of relevance, the problem of what to pay attention to and why all of a sudden becomes overwhelming. And I remember, for example, back in 2016, uh, I was actually happened to be on a trip in Israel and I found myself waking up in my apartment or my Airbnb upset that Trump was elected. And I was just like, what am I doing? Like, why do I care about this right now? Like, <laughs> you know, it, it's just this, you know, this parasitical grasp of the global digital communication system, which is totally disorienting and pulling me away from the immediacy of where I am and what I'm doing and what I should be paying attention to. Um, and I think for me in that context, McLuhan is at his best when he says something like, man is caused by a new medium and the medium like the electronic media is like an atomic bomb. And I think that this is to me how we should conceive of the global village. It's like the internet is like an atomic bomb and an atomic bomb that totally disorients all of our senses of, of being here, or being in the world. Um, and in that sense, you know, um, I just throw out the question of what comes to your mind when you think about, you know, our current media in that context of like a, a, a global bomb has gone off. Uh, and now we're just um, trying to piece together a, a sense of what the world might look like after the bomb's gone off, you know? I'm gonna just jump right in then to say that like, go, the, I think the tie between, uh, and maybe I'm setting you up, uh, Andy, but, the, the tie between digital literacy and this the detonation of this bomb um, is, well, two things. I think we need to focus on survival itself, right? The maintenance and salvaging of sanity, right? Like McLuhan actually says that he thinks one of the consequences of uh, – I kept saying digitalization, but that's actually not the word that he was using here, and I don't think he was so much – uh, observing digitalization as what was the word he was just using in that quote um it's the electronic age of instantaneous communication right that's what he's focusing on is this he says that humans did not evolve to communicate or perceive um things that aren't present to us like in our vicinity at the speed of light right so at the time of the founding of the United States, it took like, like the shortest amount of time it would take to send a letter to somebody in Paris was like seven months, right? Like um, if you read the letter exchanges between like, say, John Adams and uh, Abigail Adams, the sometimes 
it took like a year and a half because one of those ships sank right <laughs> like there's just this the, like communication we had so much time to cool down um after receiving a letter like you you've already been processing all this stuff you want to say and then you read this letter like eight times over the course of a few days while you're kind of thinking out what you want to say in response and then you pen this beautiful letter and then you send that back and it's like that that is not here that is not with us that is gone right like instead you get people apologizing because they didn't respond instantaneously Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't respond at the speed of light exactly when you wanted me to. What? And so I put out a video at the beginning of this year that was just like, don't ever apologize to me for not responding quickly because that normalizes this idea of instantaneity, of instantaneous access to the other. I am not available on demand at the speed of light and neither should you. And we should not expect one another to be. But there is this expectation. And obviously that is an expectation that doesn't serve us. It serves our bosses who want to be able to reach us on the, uh, like a Friday evening to say, I actually want you to come in on Saturday morning, right? It works uh, in the interest of companies, the most profitable country uh, companies in the world where data is more valuable than oil. And data is really just what? Mass eyeballs, right? Mass eyeballs peeking in at the phone while on the toilet, while at the dinner table, while on a walk with friends, family, or by oneself, right? Interfering with that space of solitude. And so it's beneficial to big capital. It's beneficial to the Silicon Valley uh, technicians who make this stuff as addicting as possible and then outlaw it in their own private elite schools because they know it would harm their children, yet they're spreading it across the entire country to everybody else's children, right? That's criminal. But it's going to be a long time before we see anything come about to actually do anything about it. So that's why for right now, it's about survival and the maintenance of our sanity or that's trying to salvage our sanity in some cases. And so um, I guess on the one side, it's survival. On the other side, it's etiquette. We don't have etiquette anymore. Like in the Victorian era, Etiquette had become so exaggerated and hyperbolic because of class with the uh, uh, the Victorian aristocracy trying to set itself apart in distinction from lower classes to where, you know, you have like 156 different kinds of forks and spoons and knives just to eat, you know, different kinds of meals and stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but it, it was a, it's quite the elaborate setup. Well, at least they had an etiquette, though, and we'd lack etiquette altogether. For instance, if somebody says, I'm so sorry for not responding sooner, or if I haven't responded in a day's time, and then they're like, are you there? Have I offended you? This is the result of the neuroses caused by rapid evolutionary changes in our mode of life that etiquette hasn't kept up with, that ethics hasn't caught up with. And so when we try to use old forms of etiquette or old forms of ethics, old kinds of expectations in this new context, maybe they're antiquated. Maybe they don't actually make sense anymore. 
but we're, we're trying to hold on to something because we want there to be a way that we're supposed to go about things because otherwise it's so confusing. So the lack of etiquette, ethics, and expectations has caused a lot of people to want to grasp onto older ideas. And then the people who are like, well, those are just antiquated. Those people are not developing realistic, plausible forms of etiquette that could be used by a society at large. Instead, they're extremely hyper niche. So, for instance, like leftist social justice, you know, we're going to try to spot microaggressions. We're going to look at who talks for how long and be like a little accountants over who says how many words and what kinds of identity is that person holding and how well are they representing that group and, uh, you know, uh, and and then judging people as individuals on the basis of like how well they are are, uh, basically acting as influencers instead of treating them like singular humans. And so that's the stuff that comes out of little folk political groups trying to to maintain their own sanity and and live counter to a mass society that has lost any kind of sense of etiquette. Obviously, these kinds of spaces want to change the – Overton window. They want to change what's normal and they want to try to impact the society at large. But because they're so niche in the curation of their boutique consumer identities, right? Their solutions aren't really intelligible, palpable, or 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 reasonable for most people. And so what I'm saying is that we lack general consensus about how we should be people with one another socially. And so I'm not saying that we're going to develop um, our own, you know, mass appeal kind of etiquette at Theory Underground, but we're going to be thinking in that direction a little bit, and at least for ourselves, like survival and like how do how how do we set ex- expectations and boundaries with with other people who've been habituated towards this stuff, and I think digital literacy on the base uh, with, with with a foundation of critical media theory, these are the prerequisites for what we need if we are to survive as humans, which is ultimately a new form of like a way of being with one another. And we're, we're not going to come up with that without these things. Yeah. And so, you know, kind of going off of that and thinking about the like atomic bomb that I see, I one that really deeply concerns me and is something that I want to focus on and then that I just have experience with being someone who is from Gen Z. I see, you know, Twitter, but mostly Instagram and TikTok as these like radically new, this radically new atomic bomb that has completely shaped and changed, you know, people from as young as nine years old to people my age and a little bit older, you know, in their 20s. So elementary school to like college age, young professionals. Um, and I think there's there's enough critique right now on on what the content of this media does to us, how it, you know, shapes our perception of gender and our bodies and, and all of that. But I really am looking forward to kind of exploring these new forms of social media that are so popular, especially with young people right now, as yeah, as the media in themselves and how the, the the form of these are radically changing us. So with TikTok especially, like most of my peers, I haven't been on TikTok for a couple of years. It really got popular at the peak of the pandemic. We were all lonely. Everyone was like, oh, I'm gonna, you know, learn TikTok dances and make bread and whipped coffee. And that was kind of the thing that was bringing us together. But I see it as 
just this very, very dangerous technology that has radically shaped and not only TikTok, but like Instagram and the technologies that I had when I was, you know, 11, 12 years old have completely changed this generation's attention span. I mean, that's a struggle that educators are having to deal with a lot right now is, is how to hold students' attention. You know, when I was working in the university trying to develop a course, I even struggled just to convince the other professor to give the students longer readings. It's like even college age students in college setting courses, they're just not expected to read anything long. And you can be you know, frustrated about it from a teaching perspective, but you can't blame them because they go home and it's, oh, TikTok, TikTok, okay, I switch to this. Oh, okay, switch to this. Oh, I'm looking at this now. Oh, I'm on my laptop. It's like, there's this current meme going on right, going around right now. That's how to get kids to focus. And it has someone's like giving a speech. And then on the screen next to them is Subway, the game Subway Surfers. They're just like playing a video loop of Subway Surfers. And that's kind of the meme is like, like young people today have to have something else to focus on along with the speech or along with whoever's talking like we can't just sit and read a book for an hour or two hours it's like go 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 and so that's a struggle that teachers are having to deal with we see you know this technology that we're always on we it's in when we're standing in lines we can no longer just kind of stand in a line in an elevator at the dinner table you know that i tell dave that is my like the thing that makes me the most sad about all of this technology and i think is really telling of our times is when we're out at a restaurant and i see a family sitting together and the parents are both on their phone and the kid is like watching something on an ipad or their parents phone no more is it oh let's play tic-tac-toe on the on the kids menu and talk about our weeks so it's radically changing the family it's radically changing friendships you know the way I communicate with some of my friends now who are from high school who I don't see very much is rather than checking in on each other, we send each other memes and we send each other TikToks and that's kind of our monthly or bi-monthly like check-in. And so it's it's radically changing us in all of these ways. You know, Sherry Trickle, when we in the course, we'll talk about these two concepts that she focuses on, solitude versus solicitude. It changed, so solitude being our time with ourselves, this technology has radically changed our our ability to have any sort of solitude at all i mean i'm guilty of it as well just sitting with myself and having nothing coming into my brain just me and my own thoughts i think today um we consider me time solitude as sitting and having your phone or getting to watch netflix or watch some youtube videos and then on the other hand solicitude being with others that's been radically changed as well because like i said we always have the phone with us we're you know switching attention between the person that we're with and what's on the screen and and engaging with them by look at what's on my screen and so in terms of thinking about how to how to deal with this atomic bomb of this this technology that has like rapidly changed our attention span and kind of how we interact with ourselves and each other i i falter between being an optimist and a pessimist like every other week it seems like i go oh, it's hopeless, I can't do anything about it. And then, oh no, we can take individual action. And I think after this interview that Dave and I did just last week with Andrew McLuhan, the grandson of Marshall McLuhan, I definitely have a bit of more optimism than I think I normally have, which is 
you know, as much as we can, we can blame the system, we can blame the developers of this technology, we can have the critiques of the technology itself um, and the, the apps. We also have the power to, and it's hard, it's really hard, especially when you when you know that some of these apps were developed by the people who develop uh, slot machines and who, who figured out how to make it as addicting as gambling. Um, so it's a struggle, but we have the power to say, no, I'm gonna read for 15 minutes straight. And that is a form of resistance of no, I am going to leave my phone in the other room or I'm, you know, I'm, there's a trend where people like when they're out to dinner, everyone stacks their phones on top of each other. And the first friend to grab their phone has to pay for the meal. So it's like, that is a form of resistance is no, we're all going to be present with each other without our phone. And so those individual actions are what I'm excited to focus on and kind of develop with the theoretical basis in this course, but are things that we can do to kind of attempt to get our own individual lives back. It's never going to be perfect. We're never going to be able to escape it completely. Sometimes you need Facebook to, you know, get updates from a group or to be able to message certain people in another country that you're friends with. So we're never going to escape it, but it is just finding those little changes to make that we can maybe start to resist it and reclaim our lives and realize, oh, there is so much more to life and this world than just what's the latest TikTok trend? What's going on here? What's going on in this political sphere? Dave, you're yeah. muted on Zoom. I, I mean, Dave, did you want to jump in there? Go for it if you do. Okay, yeah, I'll just, uh, well, I just kind of want to, I want to say that the, the structure of this course and the intent of the course beyond, the, you know, salvaging our sanity or whatever is also to be, to kind of take what little of this kind of theory, theory and, and, and digital literacy we've already developed. I say little in, uh, to be humble, but also just realistic. Like we're not as studied in this as we want to be. And that's part of the reason that we're doing this. We're calling it a research cohort. It's not just a lecture course. Yes, there will be monthly lecture sessions, but it's also a research cohort. Um, and so the people involved our co-researchers in this process. The, the, the stuff that we are going to be uh, lecturing on is the stuff that we're most familiar with. And so there's a lot of important philosophers and, uh, and uh, technology theorists that we're not going to be going into very in-depth. And, and really, we're not going to be doing anything in-depth. And so the, the point is, is like, oh, you've got lots of different courses going on, or you've got work and family and life, and you're really busy, and you're already super distracted, and you're already not very well versed in writing and reading. You've pretty much not done that since high school or college, and you're just, you've just been super uh, preoccupied with everything else. And some of the people who are doing this course will be also reading Being in Time with us. And so nobody has a time and energy. But we need to think and be reminded of our relationship with our, with ourselves, with others, and the devices that are mediating or interrupting, but potentially enhancing those relationships in some ways. And so we could have just done this as a short course where we do it in six weeks, just uh, you know, a month and a half's time. We could have done it all in that window. But then you would have gotten back to your normal life. And the point is, is that in a hyper-distracted world, 
something that is meant to counter the most impactful tendencies of of the current situation, which is like acceleration and distraction, it has to be broken up and it has to allow you to get into it and to fall off of it and then get back into it again, right? And so uh, this is really like the most preliminary, most introductory level course to thinking about all of these things. And so for some weeks, um, like one week we're focusing all on the idea of solitude versus solicitude, or I'm sorry, one month. So one month we're focusing on solitude versus solicitude. Sherry Turkle doesn't call it solicitude. She just talks about genuine being with yourself versus genuinely being with other people and how when your devices keep interrupting both of those relationships, all that you have is, uh, what does she say? Being lonely with oneself and being lonely with other people, right? Um, Hannah Arendt is an important theorist who, who she's always thinking about the impact of these new developments. And so she's not typically in the canon of philosophy of technology or media theory, but I think she belongs there. Like her human condition is a genuine contribution to all of this. Um, and in her responsibility and judgment, there's a couple of amazing essays about solitude as the precondition to having a moral compass, much less to uh, being able to navigate with others ethically, right? So when you, when when that relationship between solicitude and solitude is being broken, that's also undermining our abilities to be moral, ethical, judgment-making kinds of creatures, right? So, uh, th you know, that's just one month. Um, we're going to have a whole month on manufacturing consent and propaganda because, I mean, this is that's more of how people tend to think of 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 media when they hear of media and they're thinking about it critically. They're thinking of manufacturing consent with Chomsky. They might be thinking of Edward Bernays propaganda. Um, they've you know, they might have. Um, I'm I'm forgetting the the name, and this is uh, this is bad. Who's the Who's the Adam Curtis? Adam Curtis documentaries, right? Like that, those are very impactful on this discourse in the niche areas of the internet that actually kind of pay attention to these things, to how technology and media have shaped subjectivity. Um, so people watch a lot of Adam Curtis documentaries, and that's definitely like a focus on on. Uh, propaganda and manufacturing consent and uh, the psychology of persuasion. But we're just going to do that in one month, introduce a variety of authors, introduce a variety of concepts, talk about some basic stuff in both propaganda and advertising slash marketing, right? Because marketing and uh, propaganda both rely on certain concepts of psychology and they, and they instrumentalize psychology with the intent of persuasion and manipulation, right? And so, on the one level, we want to defend ourselves from that. Um, but also we want to think about that in the context of McLuhan, right? And it's thinking about things critically in the con on that on that sort of McLuhan slash Marxist basis that gets us to thinkers like Virilio, that gets us to thinkers like Baudrillard. And so there's a lot of these other thinkers who are going to be absolutely fundamental, but first we have to pass through McLuhan. 
then there's Heidegger's The Question Concerning Technology. There's like more recent books like uh, Hate Inc., which is really Hate Inc. is the continuation of the Manufacturing Consent Project, basically showing how we've moved away from the uh, the media, the news media model where everything is about um, manufacturing consent with like some some like majority that the left and the right have a general consensus agreement on on like a ton of things right and it's the the new model is duopoly of of constant civil war in the cultural realm right between fox news and msnbc and so that i mean that's the business model now is constant um antagonism constant anxiety constant stress that's that's the marketing strategy now as opposed to in the, the you know the 1980s and the 1990s it was more of like we all left or right kind of laugh at the fringe freaks the fringe freaks who they're all upset and hysterical right like oh it's those the the the, the book burners over here and uh and 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 these uh, abortion protesters over here like we, oh we laugh at them you know but we have a general consensus and and that kind of keeps the the majority together no the new the new bottle with hate inc is no Half the country's absolutely crazy and wants to kill us and 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 fuck up your kids. And then the other half, and the other half is saying no, all the same things, but it's them, and it's constant. And in and in actual fact, they don't represent halves of the country. They represent like fifteen percent of the country. Each one of each of these sides represents about fifteen percent of the country. And then most other people kind of just have like some vague sense that that's going on, and they hate it and they're averse to it, right? So. We move through all of those things. We're going to get into Byung-Chul Han's psychopolitics, his burnout society. Um, and so we're drawing from all of these different theorists. And then we're drawing from, uh, as Anne was saying, the digital literacy people are a lot more like this popular newsstand bestseller types of thinkers like Cal Newport and Sherry Turkle, who are absolutely fundamental right? Because they're doing work that is not being done in theory circles or in philosophy circles. And so their work in some ways is going to benefit a lot from being brought into dialogue with these theorists, but these theorists are going to benefit as well by being brought into actual practice, right? In, into these basic uh, strategies for coping, right? And so every month there will just be a single uh uh assignment as far as like what you're supposed to be doing that month and it might just be to uh you know figure out like to leave your phone downstairs or not not to bring it to your bedroom your phone your your bedroom becomes a no phones zone right or it could be an assignment like uh doing a journal entry even for just five minutes per day right but these basic kinds of things that are meant to in various ways intervene and counteract certain tendencies and then there's like this discussion group component so that we'll be able to kind of all share our experiences because that's the idea about this being a research cohort is that none of us really know the answers we just don't and so what we hope to do is find share learn grow together fantastic i mean i think a lot of you know, the themes that were running through both of your reflections there, uh, a lot of them involve boundary formation. Like, so I think like, for example, if we use the metaphor of the internet and the electronic media as a type of atomic bomb, it's like the bomb, what the bomb exploded were our boundaries or constraints or um, sort of a 
yeah, simply limits. And, and, and so now we live in this space of no boundaries. We live in this space of no constraints. We live in this space of no limits. And we don't have any normativity. We don't have any consensus or center to um, organize uh, a new set of boundaries, a new set of constraints, a new set of limits. Um, and I think that brings us to an interesting interplay, you know, which I wanted to talk about that, that that's throughout McLuhan's work, which is this idea that the types of media that developed in civilization led to an individualistic culture as opposed, as opposed to a tribal culture, and that the electronic media is leading us back to a tribal culture and away from an individualistic culture. Again, you get this structure which appears in Marx from primitive communism to, to world communism, uh, where you go from like, we lived in a hunter-gatherer tribes, and then we're going to go to a global village where we're back in the same tribe. And there's this movement away from the individual to the tribal. Um, however, it seems to me like I'm looking for a more complex view of the situation, or at least a new lens to the situation, because I think what's often overlooked in that narrative is the fact that the individual is an achievement of history. Like um, if we go back to a situation where there's not even a, a way to, to individualize or conceptualize yourself as an individual, there's a lot of negative side effects to that, which was also brought up in the, in the interview with McLuhan and he responded to it in various ways. But I, I just like to get a sense of what both of you think about this dynamic between the individual on the one hand and the community or the tribe on the other hand, and what the role of, of boundary formation might be here, because I think that it's beyond the capacity for an individual human to actually uh, identify tribally with the entire planet and to identify tribally with the entire uh, species which again, you get into this idea in Marx of species being. Um, and then the other thing is like, is the individual so bad? Um, and what's the role of differentiation? And what's the role of like, you know, cultivating both a self and an other dynamic, which seems to me to come up in both of your speech, which is to basically, create boundaries so that we have a, a good self-relation and a good other relation and a dynamic between the two. Yeah, I'll start on this one. Um, just the other day, Dave and I were kind of talking about almost this exactly. And I, I almost had this like realization, maybe it wasn't such a deep realization, but at the time I was like, oh my gosh, this is brilliant. No, um, I think right now in our society, I especially see it as you know, a young woman, I see a lot of this push of be an individual, pursue your career, like you don't need anyone, uh, no one owes you anything. And there is a lot of push on individualism. There's a lot of, I think, like anti-family sentiment um, that, I, that I see, that I feel, just like I said, from my perspective um, and my age. Um, and so, yeah, we've, we're kind of living in this hyper-individualistic culture which, yeah, we can weigh like the pros and cons of that. Maybe there is some benefit to encouraging people today, especially younger women to, yeah, you don't need 
a man to get a credit card to do this to do that as we saw you know 100 years ago where women didn't have the same autonomy and ability to just function as their own person in humanity in society okay that's good but then on the other hand you know we see like i said an anti-family a very career like an individualist careerist push that that makes the meaning as your life is just go be a go-getter be the girl boss um you know do this it's all you and i think that is going to create i think we're kind of in the middle of it and i can't speak to anyone else's experience in the same way that we don't really know the effects of these media while we're in the environment we're only going to find out after the fact we're only going to find out you know 10 20 30 years down the line when these people who are have been pushed this idea that individualism is the way are in their 40s 50s 60s we're gonna just see how they feel about their lives um but the realization that i i came to the other night was like we our lives are not meaningful like just be, as human beings because we're individuals but what makes us uniquely human as opposed to um an animal who you know they they're animals are usually like especially mammals are like pack they're pack animals are always together but when they're out on their own hunting or whatever there's probably not like thoughts going through their head they're not reflecting on their lives their society what they're reading but what makes us human the cool thing about being human is that we do get to develop that relationship with ourselves but that's not the only thing that we need so i think we are relational people i think we need to have relations you know from the day we're born we're like we need mama we need to be on her we need to be with a caretaker i think there's something innate in us that that i don't necessarily want to say craves but does well does a lot better thrives with maybe it's physical affection from a partner from friends just being around others we're social creatures um so while being social creatures the thing that makes us uniquely human is that we have the ability to develop a relationship with ourselves that other animals that other species probably can't do um and so yeah when thinking about this idea of the cultural village versus smaller villages versus individualism. I kind of forgot, I kind of forgot your, uh, your question, but um, just in terms of thinking boundaries, about- oh, yeah. boundary, Boundaries for the self and okay. the other, some dynamic between the self and the other. And, mm -hmm. you know, it, is there a dis- yeah, I agree that like, uh, if we go all the way individualistic, that's not the way to go. If we go all the way tribal, I also think there's, uh, a downside to that as well right yeah and so so the the struggle in this day and age where we have this medium or the the technology kind of interfering with these two relationships it'll be the struggle of finding the time and the space to cultivate your relationship with yourself outside of it and finding the time and the space to cultivate your relationship with the people around you i i think you know it, as as maybe cool or revolutionary as it is to know everything that's going on around the world and to have friends all around the world i i do think that is an overall net positive it's like cadell we wouldn't be able to talk if we didn't have this technology our friends that we just made in mexico we want to be able to keep up with them and, and check in on them and hear about their lives i think that is we're able to have friends so so many other places but to to 
try to feel like we have to be these globally connected citizens, we can appreciate our global community and our global humanity and, and try to see the humanity in other people and other cultures and just like have a, have a base understanding without feeling like we have to advocate for every single issue that's going on in the world. Because I think it's the relationships with the people whose faces we know, whose voices we know, whether it is, you know, through Zoom or just the people that we know in our everyday lives are the relationships that matter the most and that we do need to focus on. So in terms of thinking about, you know, being social and kind of getting that social fill, just going on Twitter and having Twitter conversations isn't going to cut it. You know, going on, talking to people through the DMs that you've never met before isn't necessarily going to cut it. And that's almost my critique of, you know, when talking about all of this, I think we need to talk about like dating apps and um, Tinder and all of those. It's like that kind of muddies the line between like relationship with the other, especially in, you know, like a sexual sense we're all in the what is sex course by Lenka Zupanchik and so thinking about that also and how this technology interferes with our, our sexual relations as well is one where it's like we used to not meet people like this now we're meeting people who we didn't meet face to face first it was we met them through text only we just saw some selected pictures of them and so figuring out is this a net positive how do we use that to create relationships but i think it is yeah the relationships with the real people in our lives that we have to focus on cultivating and and giving a little bit more time and attention to than just uh everything going on online i really like how you turned that back into talking about dating on the one hand dating is a problem today because this is like the loneliest generation right like uh like one in three millennials doesn't have any friends or something like that. Like more and more zoomers are like just lonely, anxious, depressed. And then like the bonds that are forming are on the basis of like these algorithmically curated sort of uh, experiments that are being conducted on the massive humans who use the technology, right? Like the, the, the users are the Guinea pigs, right? And, you know, there's, there are, I think that because we keep saying the negative things, we have to actually reverse the uh, Virilio's famous statement. Virilio says, "With the invention of the ship, you get the shipwreck." Yeah, but you also get to you know go to the other side of the world, and so there's positives. Like I'm sure some beautiful, loving relationships are also forming, but the amount of people lonely. And turning to porn or or technical technical uh, devices for their gratification, um, instead of you know forming lasting bonds or relationships, that's that's not seemingly going down and is only getting worse. And so, the part of part of the thing that we keep kind of circling around is this idea of like. Is it a net positive? Is it a net negative? Should we be optimistic? Should we be pessimistic? And I think part of the part of the thing is like it's good, it's bad. We just need to understand how and in what ways it is these things, how it is useful, how it is counterproductive, and to align our expectations with the reality of the situation. And that reality is not one that we can just know without researching, right? 
But the, as far as the global village versus individuals, I just wanted to say that there is this conceptual distinction between individualism and individuals, right? The, I think, Cadell, that you're correct, that the individual is a special moment in history, right? That, yeah, capitalism has used that, the, 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 the sort of creation of the individual or the, the discovery or, or that, I don't know how we want to value. say value the value of the individual, right? That we, that we value the individual. Like, I mean, let me just give a, I mean, a very practical example is like in traditional cultures, uh, you make, especially as a woman, you making your own determination on who you date and why was not valued. Right. Like that's, that is, you don't choose. It's the, 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 the culture, the tradition, the, the, the society, the family chooses. And I think that the modern world, and this, this is like the funny thing about Kant's, uh, what is enlightenment in the opening pages of what an enlightenment he's basically saying, look, you're an individual. You can think for yourself, use the power of your own understanding. And like, I remember reading those pages and I was like, people needed to hear that, but yeah, people needed to hear that. <laughs> right. Like, so, so I just wanted to emphasize this because, and in the context of what I'm throwing back to you, Dave, immediately is in the explosion of the atomic bomb and like, you know, all, uh, you know, fairness to McLuhan, like he couldn't predict the future, but he was just sort of being like an artist, like intimating the future possibilities of the electronic explosion is like, he was predicting that we're heading back to a tribal set situation, but you're saying loneliness is increasing. So like, like, I'm just saying like, what's going on here? I'm more just like hysteric. Like I'm, I'm hysterical, you know, like what's going on. Yeah. So individualism. Well, okay. So the ideology of individualism will set that to the side and just say that the modernity brings about liberalism, which was not, you know, in, in its classical sense has nothing to do with Democrats, right? But has everything to do with the individual and saying that the individual has rights, natural rights, right? And that, that, that you cannot just hang, draw, and quarter or torture somebody just because they say, I think the king is wrong. Or I don't believe the Bible, right? Treason and blasphemy are concepts in traditional society across the board. Traditional societies tend to be a lot more collectivist, right? And they don't have like this robust sense of like, no, but you're an individual, right? And so, yeah, no, I mean, almost everything I say and do flies in the face of tradition. And there's a lot of people who would have me punished for that, right? In a lot of societies and even people in our own society today. They don't like it. They don't think that I should have that freedom. They don't consider that real freedom. They consider real freedom only this. Real freedom is you choosing to follow the rules, right? And uh, and to and to and to to kind of sacrifice yourself to become a cog in this greater good collective that is personified in the form of some king or some fuhrer or some chairman, right? So totalitarianism is a response to uh, modern alienation and the the de 
tribalization that causes a lot of feelings of anxiety, right? But it also is the basis for almost everything good that we tend to take for granted. So uh, from communism to fascism, these are responses to the situation that try to re-tribalize us, but in some mass society. Being tribalized when you know the 200 people has got to be a different experience than being tribalized by force by a state that's trying to take over the entire world, right? That is the total mobilization of millions of people or billions of people. That is horrific as compared to the total mobilization of 200 people, right? Well, at least you know those 200 people. And if you really fucking hate the chief in that or, or somebody on the council in that tribe of 200 people, you can kill them. Like you can actually intervene. You can just stop them. And Shout obviously, yeah, yeah. If Shout after Freud, totem and taboo, what up? Take down the primal father. You can actually take down the primal father, but also your words could have an impact and actually change things, right? Like you could politically navigate with everybody else in that situation. Um, that That's just not on the table for a mass society. But okay, so there's all these advantages to the individual all these things that we like about the individual. Then there's individualism, which is toxic in a lot of ways. And we could get into the reasons why. I just wanted to separate the two and then say that atomization is not the same thing as the individual in its more robust sense. Like, I don't know where I've heard this, but I'm sure you've all heard it as well. But the the developmental stage thing is supposed to go from dependence, you're depending on your parents, to independence, you can actually take care of yourself, to interdependence, because once you've learned how to take care of yourself, then you learn how to work with other people, right? Individualism doesn't want you to learn how to be interdependent with other people, right? It's 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 a complete focus on the self. All success and failure comes down to the self. You're responsible for everything in life. And that's a crazy burden to bear, right? But um I don't I don't know that we even get past dependence nowadays, right? In in, in a lot of cases. And so um yeah, the hyper atomization though isn't necessarily even the discovery of the individual, right? If you're hyper atomized and you only find yourself through being represented by some influencers that are algorithmically curated and and, and geared towards your consumer interests, and that gives you your sense of being in the world. Are you really an individual, right? Are you really mediating between universality and and uh, and uh, particularity to flesh out and develop your singularity? No, probably not. Not in a lot of cases. And so, to some degree, you are. But how robust is it? And so, yeah, these are the kinds of problems and things that we'll be thinking about. I really quick here want to plug well the shirt that i'm wearing i actually actually chose this shirt for the occasion you can't see it um it's from the my favorite band their album that came out in 2018 which was called a brief inquiry into online relationships um and so they have a particular song in this album it's called the man who married a robot and the song is recorded in like a robot reader voice over this almost creepy melodic um music in the back and so it's like a 
a British male like Siri voice speaking like this is the story about a lonely lonely man he lived in a lonely house on a lonely street blah 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 but the internet was his friend you could say it was his best friend and so it goes through like telling this story of this man you know they would play with each other every day watching videos of humans doing all sorts of things having sex with each other informing people on what was wrong with them in their lives playing games with young children at home with their parents um and so it kind of goes through this like relationship that this man has with it's just calling it the internet and he says you know the, the internet asks him do you love me and he says yes i love you very very much i never want us to be apart ever um and by the end of the song after it goes through all the things that the man and the internet would do together and they go everywhere together um it goes so yeah, the internet says, you can tell you can tell me anything. I'm your best friend. Anything you say to me will stay strictly between you and the internet. And so he did. The man shared everything with his friend, all of his fears and desires, all of his loves past and present, all of the places he had been and was going and pictures of his penis. He would tell himself, man does not live by bread alone. And then he died in his lonely house, on the lonely street, in that lonely part of the world. You can go on his Facebook. And that's how the song ends. And I think that in this conversation of loneliness is like, that's it, that's it. We think we, and that's why in the comment, in the chat here, I said, it's alone, we're a lonely tribe um, is because we think we have this like tribe. We think we have community on the internet, but then in the end, if it's not with real people who are in your life every day, you die and then who's there to remember you it's like you can go on his facebook oh wow you can kind of see remnants of a real person but you didn't actually know the real person and so i wanted to plug that because i think that song now that we're in the middle of this conversation i go wow this is very relevant and like haunting it's a haunting song it truly is i i highly recommend it um yeah i'm gonna check out that album after this uh after this conversation it's really good yeah thank you thank you for that it's uh i think i think it captures you know to me what i what i feel like so like in this in this dialectic between original community emergence of the individual and a desire to return to an original community i right. think well, i think that what's missed here is confronting loneliness and the alienation we can feel in loneliness as a positive. So what I mean by that is that it's like, it's almost a privilege to be at a time and be in a, in, in a, in a situation where we can be alienated like that, where we can experience loneliness like that. There's, there's almost like a historical, um, privilege that 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 that's opened up here and i think that what's at stake in this movement from what i like thinking of as from loneliness to aloneness is becoming comfortable with aloneness and from the space of being comfortable with aloneness being more aware and selective about your tribe so it's not like uh, undifferentiated, we're all in the same tribe. It's that people who are comfortable with themselves alone, selectively forming tribes or networks. 
And those networks having a different quality to them than the original traditional tribes because they're composed of individuated elements who in some sense have, have created a cultural, uh, a cultural selection, have gone through a cultural selection process in some sense. I think that the problem with that narrative, again, or at least a potential compli com complication of that narrative is with, for example, reproduction, building families and all of those things, because as soon as you engage in reproduction and building families, it seems to me you encounter those psychoanalytic dimensions like the Oedipal Triangle and, and all, sorts of, all sorts of other um, dynamics that are, that are characteristics of tribes. But one of the things I wanted to bring up here that I think is emerging in a very interesting way in our current society and our current culture, and which is actually interestingly framed in this interview with McLuhan, is this idea of the global electronic hyper future tribe and the, um, the weird position of Africa. So like they say it many times in the interview, like uh, I'll just give the exact quotes is like, um, well, one, Africa as a representative of the original tribe, he says, you know, and, and talking about how uh, Africans are now today being pulled away from their original tribal web into an alphabetic literacy. Um, and, and that there, and, and that, you know, we see in African society, the original tribal society, and that they're, they have to sacrifice their senses now in the, in the internet age. But also this idea that in a total retribalization, that we are re-encountering, quote unquote, the Africa within. This was a, a quote that was brought up. And I, and I think that that's a super interesting thing to talk about, because I think like, and especially like in the context of like American culture, because like American culture, I think in the 21st century, my hypothesis is, and then I'll throw it to you guys to get your view. My hypothesis is, is that 20th century American culture was based on, in some sense, a um, unconscious sublimation of African culture in a way that they could repress the origin of African culture. So like, for example, rock and roll with Elvis Presley for example, like is, is a good example, but like in the 21st century, it's like you can't, like America, America can't do, can't, can't do that anymore. So now there's just sort of a, an explicit open affirmation of African-American culture, like hip hop being the most dominant music form, or, you know, just this, this idea that there's some confrontation with African identity, which can no longer be repressed or somehow, um, politically uh, marginalized, like for example, with like uh, segregation or different forms of housing code uh, restrictions and stuff like this. I'd be interested to know because I think this is an interesting thing to think about because also in the context of global culture, Africa holds a very strange place. Uh, I could go into like perhaps why that is, but they were very disconnected from the history of colonial expansion. And I think are only more recently being integrated into global society. But it just comes up in this, in this paper of the relationship between, again, high technology, uh, global tribe and the Africa within.
Do you guys have any any views on this? No idea what to say about this. <laughs> I I just I mean I remember thinking like wow I don't think that he would say that in this day and age because we're not supposed to talk about Africa in this sort of totalizing way where it's like this you know it's like oh Africa the dark it's our dark past you know it's a it's the dark rhythm of everybody's past or something like this is the kind of way that people would talk about it back then and uh, obviously. Africa is a very diverse continent with a lot of different kinds of cultures and everything like that. And so it's sort of totalization is, is generally one of like, Oh, they're backward savages or they're the enlightened, like noble savages who really were more in touch with how life is supposed to be. And any kind of backwardness that we might perceive today is a mere product of colonization of slavery of, you know, all of this other stuff. And then, of course, if you zoom in and and actually look at it, the the history is a lot more complicated, right? Because people are complicated and they're people, and so the the I guess the 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 main thing is just like he comes, to, he seems to romanticize the tribe in this way that like Rousseau does, in this way that you're saying that Marx did. I think I don't know if Marx did it so much as like. I think he was kind of interested in the anthropology of his time, but he wasn't basing the stuff that he did on that anthropology. I think he took it critically with a grain of salt. And Engel was the one, Engels was the one who was trying to make a political ontology out of anthropology of his time and adapt it to Marxism. And so for Engels, no, the prehistoric, prehistoric tribal communal man, it's all the same. They all are egalitarian. And that was something broadly believed in at the time. And it's also something that anthropologists tended to believe um, at the time. And a lot of times those anthropologists were leftists and they thought that to make real change, people needed to have a new idea of what human nature is. And so what we do is we go and we look at tribal societies and we call them prehistoric, right? As though they, as though when we go to visit some tribe, we're going back in time, even though of course they live right now. This is just they're they're concurrent with us. And so it's all complicated, but I would just I would just say that like I think you already touched on it and of course Cadell you've got the background in anthropology academically speaking, so maybe you can expand on it a little bit, but these were war-torn societies already. Right? African societies, yeah. Thousands of years. Yeah, yeah, they're very 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 complex tribal societies. I just want to I wanted to situate it in the context of this and, and in the context of the article, they're basically saying Western societies are atomized individualistic and African societies are tribal and that 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 we're going back to a, a global tribe and that this brings like they're saying the Africa within. And I see like this still in our thought, like I still see like, for example, let me just give a concrete example is in uh, Daniel Tut's recent book on the psychoanalysis of the family in the last chapter, he talks about how we can like we should learn from the black family about like like the individualistic white like basically the individual ind individualistic white america can learn from the black family as a model for breaking out of the nuclear family or something like that like to re-establish the extended family or something like that this is idea that somehow african culture is more connected to the tribe than the rest of 
society. I don't know if that has any legitimate currency to it, but it's just something that comes up in this article and I wanted to see if you guys had any views on it. Yeah, I think I think Dave and you both kind of got into it because this is a a tough one to struggle with, especially in the age of like you kind of have to be a PC when you're a white person talking about race or Africa. Um, I think that's a symptom of it. Yeah, I think a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, I as an individual, we can't really necessarily say, oh, going back to this is a good thing or not. I think there's there's benefits, as we've already been talking about, there's benefits to being in a small tribe or a medium-sized tribe. There's benefits to being an individual and develop and cultivating a relationship with your individual self. Um, but I definitely do see today this the idea kind of like you said with like the example you gave, people putting values on ways of life as like, this is the way to do it. And then ex another example that came to my mind kind of similar is in the last few years, I've seen multiple times people who are like activists sharing infographics on their Instagram or whatever, saying these are characteristics of white supremacy culture. And we need to, so in turn being the opposite would be like a more racially diverse culture would be the opposite of these things, but the, the characteristics of white supremacy culture, things like perfectionism, paternalism, individualism, progress equals bigger thinking, defensiveness, worship of the written word. I think that one's especially really relevant in this case, objectivity. Um, and so under that- This is what I'm talking about. Yeah, so under, yeah. under that, which I don't, I don't know if I necessarily like, agree with this being like white supremacist, like white supremacist culture is literate or like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I've like, been seen, where... <laughs> yeah, it's, it's terrible to like characterize people on the basis of their, their skin color as, oh, if you're a perfectionist, it's like, okay, I grew up like in perfectionism ingrained in my mind. Oh no, I'm you know, perpetuating white supremacy because I wanted to get A's on my report card. And and maybe there's some merit into like saying, oh, well, just like blanket perfectionism or blanket objectivity or blanket individualism are not good things. But to root it in like a race or racial supremacy or fascism is is interesting. And it's a it's very touchy. Um, but yeah, I I think what Dave said, human beings are so complicated in the ways that we live our lives based on our culture, but only like our physical location and just how we develop as societies and as cultures and as tribes. I don't know if it, if we can really just say like, oh, good, bad, good, bad here, this, this, you know, African tribal is good. And this white supremacist individualism is bad because as McLuhan talks about in this interview, as some of the books I've been reading, as we've all been talking about, there's pros and cons to both of it. And so I think, yeah, this is, this is a really interesting and tough point in the, in the interview to struggle with, especially in our current, you know, BLM activism age. <laughs> the, the problem with essentializing 
racial characteristics in this way. I, I like how Nance says this in the piece, in his piece that's going to be included in the forthcoming underground theory volume. That is, it also has pieces by all of us. Um, but he says that the problem with this kind of racial essentialism is that when, as soon as you start saying that certain groups of people are naturally better at certain kinds of things, you're also at the other side of your mouth insinuating that certain groups of people are also just worse at certain kinds of things, right? And this is the kind of racism that you will deal with as a Native American or as a Black person in the United States growing up in a Native American or Black community, especially a poorer community, where if you are reading, you actually take reading seriously, they'll you'll get bullied for it. You're told oh, you're being white right now. If you're a white kid and you're reading and taking your reading seriously, you're probably going to get bullied for it anyway. Like people are going to call you a nerd. People are, you know, like, why do you, why are you doing that? Why don't you just play sports? You know, you stupid nerd. And of course, like we're all athletic in our own ways and we don't really buy into this binary between these two things, but children do. And uh, the problem with being a Native American or a black kid is that, not only do you get bullied for it like the white kid, but now it's also being racialized. They're now telling you that you've internalized the oppressor, that you've internalized whiteness. That is itself a form of racism, right? It's something that John McWhorter talks about in his book, Losing the Race. It's something that uh, I think Dr. Adolph Reed talks about, but it's also something that Frederick Douglass um well, I'm not sure if he talked about this expressly, but the reason I want to bring Frederick Douglass into it is like in the the life and times of Frederick Douglass, like one of the first um, freed slaves who was a public intellectual and had a huge influence on the emancipation of slavery or like the, the abolition of slavery and the emancipation of slaves. Frederick Douglass, his account of going from uh, slavery to freedom it's also it's it's not just about uh you know economic and material um uh uh, uh impoverishment right it's more about the impoverishment of the soul and of 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 human spirit and its ability to be a historic creature that knows it's that 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 has some sense of the world beyond immediacy right and his fight to become literate is one of the most moving accounts in the history of the written word, right? So Frederick Douglass, I, I, I see Frederick Douglass as absolutely essential for thinking about the power of literacy. He didn't just learn to be literate so that he could convince the white master to free him or to convince the broader white society that he's a person too. Like that's something that he does do. But no, being literate is a is a value unto its own self, right? And and it's something that that he's like. There's probably no more powerful voice for describing it. But I, on the Native American side, I just wanted to kind of point out that this is a, a constant sort of through line in everything that Sherman Alexie writes, right? Sherman Alexie's kind of from my area of the United States in the Pacific Northwest. He uh, grew up probably an hour away from where I grew up in Spokane, Washington, on the reservation there. And uh, he was also bullied for, for uh, caring about books. And the way that he learned how to read 
it was actually kind of crazy. He, he he didn't he didn't have formal instruction. He picked up books off the shelf and he and he just obsessed over them and made and and it, it, he he taught himself how to read. I don't know. He describes it in a book called uh, Superman and Me or something like that. So anyway, um, Sherman Alexie, Frederick Douglass, John McWhorter. I think these are, you know, a few of the people who got marginalized within their already marginalized communities because they were being called white for wanting to do these things. But I just want to say most white people don't fucking read, right? Most white people don't read either. And, you know, these are already problematic categories, problematic groupings. But the point is, is like Americans in general are on TikTok not reading books. And if they are reading books, they're still functionally illiterate in the sense that they don't know how to read that book from multiple perspectives and interpret it critically. So, you know, it's a, it's a dying art form, um, but it, but every art form has something to offer. And I think that being literate has more to offer um, in terms of liberation than anything else, because the most brutal form of slavery is potentially in a world where we think that of slavery has been abolished. It's not knowing what you're doing and not having any critical distance from the things that you say, do, or believe, right? Um, just be, it makes you just an extension of the will of others and you don't know who or why or to what end. And so, but anyway, that's, that's kind of what came up right. for me. I think just winding down, just gonna give a reflection from the end of the article that I think actually points a little bit to what you're doing and I think to what 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 I'm trying to do as well um, in regards to the ethics of engaging in this transformation or this post-atomic bomb electronic media. He says that what he means, this is McLuhan, what he means by understanding media is that they extend man and that the vital task is that literate man would now plunge himself into the vortex of electronic technology to dictate his new environment. Um, and in some sense, I see that as, you know, he's talking about this being the, the literate people in the universities should take the leap into the electronic technology and go into the vortex and try to create a new world out of it. And I see in some sense, you know, both of us or all of us have had um, some exposure to academic structure to let's say cultivating a sense of uh, literacy. And now our task is to plunge into the vortex of electronic tech electronic technology and try to create a new world in this new situation as opposed to recoiling against it and being scared of it and i think that um to just before i throw it to you i i think that a course like digital literacy and critical media theory is necessary to to take that plunge and also make sense why you're uh teaching that in the context of the metaphorical plunge into the vortex so maybe just get a sense of you know what you think we should be doing or or how you think we should be interpreting this ethos that McLuhan's communicating in the context of say theory underground in the context of say this course sure i'll start here really quick by by saying that firstly you know when talking about 
these these people or these activists, both in McLuhan's age and then now, who say, "Oh yeah, we need to go back to this model of of African tribalism or or what have you." I'm sympathetic to this type of activism in the sense that they see something that is different than what we're currently in um, that maybe to them seems better. And so they're trying to grasp onto this example of something that seemed to work, that seemed to be you know, less harmful or, or better for individuals in the same way that you know, we have some friends who are Marxists and they just cling so hardly onto like the 1917 revolution and Bolshevism that, you know, that worked. And so I'm sympathetic because it's, it's a model that we have to grasp onto and to take examples from, but then my critique of that, and that's, I think, why we are teaching this course right now in this current day and age is things have changed so much that we can no longer just just say, oh, this model worked, this model works, we should just redo this model, redo this model, because everything has changed, the technology has changed, our situation is, is very different than the time of McLuhan, the time of Neil Postman in the 80s, uh, you know, so we're, we're in a very, you know, unique period of time with, with the technology, and so in terms of, you know, using McLuhan's sentiment, I think what Dave and I are trying to do here with this course, I also see in more broadly what you and Dave are both doing with your respective platforms, philosophy portal and theory underground is yeah we're we're like taking charge of this technology in a sense we are we're using it to understand it. We can't be completely outside of it just practically speaking, but then also in terms of trying to understand it, we need to experiment with it carry with it, try and fail and, and, and really use it in, in that way. And so McLuhan is definitely the, the starting point. I'm really excited to kind of get more into it. Dave will really be taking the charge of leading the McLuhan part of our first session that starts here in a few weeks. But that is what I have to say about that. Thank you. <laughs> I think the Thing that we're uh, that we haven't talked about, and that maybe is a nice way of closing this out, is that in the same way that we can say that everything's changed and we live in a different world now, we can also say that when we read these authors, we're profoundly impacted by how ahead of their time they were, and I know like when Anne was reading. Neil Postman and he's his focus is on television. It's crazy how much of what he says is still applicable with TikTok, but but like more so, right? And so the I think that when people think of philosophy in the United States, they think of either like analytic philosophy, logical paradoxes. You know, maybe it's maybe they think about, oh, that's Plato and Aristotle arguing, walking around Athens in togas. Or they kind of have this. There's a couple other visions that people have. One is like the sort of evangelical Christian God's not dead atheist professor who wants everybody to write God is dead before the class can continue. Right. He's this dogmatic sort of atheist. And in this kind of characterization of philosophy, philosophy is nothing but worldview and that 
you know, whatever the professor is teaching is just to get everyone else to believe their worldview. Um, but you're lucky if you think that, I mean, because at least that can change, that, that, that can be changed. But if you think that philosophy is, is the spirituality and UFO section at the Barnes and Noble, you're fucked, right? Like this, this is the conception of philosophy right now. Like if you go to any bookstore in the United States, it's almost always like there's the UFOs and, 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 uh, and new age spirituality. And then there's, you might find Kant's critique of pure reason if you're lucky, right? It's probably going to be some Elaine de Bottom or whatever, you know, the school of, uh, the Elaine de Bottom. Elaine de Bottom. Yes. School of Elaine de Bottom. Elaine de Bottom. Yeah. <laughs> So part of the goal of Theory Underground is to set the record straight, to help people get familiarized with, so with something that's been relegated to the academic, to a niche academic interest, and to help people kind of come into philosophy and theory in a way that makes it relevant to their lives. And one of the things that I've seen over the last like 12 years that I've been studying philosophy is people are profoundly impacted by philosophy when they see that whether it was 2,500 years ago or 200 years ago, that philosopher is saying something that they've thought themselves in like the, they, they thought the first two steps to the thought, but they didn't think the, the following five steps to that thought. Right. Like, oh, I keep having this thought, but I never think it through to its end. And I haven't really clarified it or worked it out in any kind of sophisticated way. And oh, my fucking God, Plato just did that or Kant just did that. And it's not just this abstract, speculative nonsense that's now null and void because of the advances of science, like someone like Steven Pinker would say. No, it's actually it has bearing on our life right now. And people find that to be incredibly powerful. It's why you hear people say, and he said, I say he because it's usually a he, and he said that back then. He was saying this at that time, right? So I I, I think that, that, that anything that gets people saying that about a philosopher, about philosophy in general, is a bridge to bringing people into philosophy and theory. And I'm interested in regular working people discovering concepts, concepts that help them make sense of their lives and give them some kind of liberation from the, the dogmatic, ideological immediacy that they've taken for granted, right? So we're about to go on tour across the United States. I know Philosophy Portal is big on doing real life events as well. Um, and we've both talked about doing kind of festival-like events in the future. I know you're exploring those kinds of possibilities right now actively. And that's really exciting because we have, like, I think that at a time when people are so over it, they're so over the academic specialization, compartmentalization, and hyper niche seemingly unrelated to normal life research interests. And they're also over the general discourse, the news media, the kinds of things that people worldview salesmen from business, religion, or politics are constantly feeding us as solutions to problems that are actually a lot more complicated than they're ever actually dealt with. Like people, I do think not, maybe not everybody, but a lot of people are hungry 
for philosophy and theory. And I think that we might be way ahead of our time. We might be ahead of our time by five years, by 15 years, by 50 years. But I do believe that there is a renaissance in the works. And I do believe that we are early sort of inventors and pioneers on the forefront of something that is bridging the internet and the real world that is bridging academia and public philosophy. And I think that the the inroads we want to make for people to get into this stuff have to be things that are stuff that we currently struggle with. And I think that cell phone addiction and loneliness and distraction is probably one of the best inroads to going, oh my God, Hunter Rent. Martin Heidegger, Karl Marx, Marshall McLuhan, Jean Baudrillard, Virilio, all these fucking people have so much to say about what's going on right now. And they were saying this stuff 50 to 100 years ago. Right. So that's that's what I really hope that this will do is at least bring in a few people to philosophy and theory who've never taken it seriously and really turn on some light bulbs for the rest of their lives. Give them something that they can find uh, spiritual, intellectual nourishment from. Fantastic. All right. So final, final point, the digital literacy and critical media theory class will start Sunday, June 11th. Uh, it will run for six months. Uh, they'll be meeting, like I said, uh, once a month. Um, so it's not going to be a uh, super uh, extensive um, time commitment in terms of your weekly uh, participation, but it will be a long-term mediation, which will involve your active reflective engagement with your own relationship to technology. Uh, if you want, in the context of this tech, in the con in the context of this conversation, your own relationship to the atomic bomb that is new media, and I think that. You know, uh, the lectures, which will be a part of the course, will give you that conceptual background that Dave was talking about, that philosophical framing that might help you approach uh, practical problems in your own life, which otherwise you might not have the tools to deal with. And here we had a conversation about McLuhan, which hopefully gives you a window into the types of things you might want to be brainstorming now uh, in preparation for the course. So again, uh, links to all of that will be in the description. Uh, Theory Underground is, is where you're going to want to go. And on that note, uh, Dave, and thanks so much. Any final just send-offs before we, we shut down here? Yeah, I'll just really quick say thank you so much for having us on and having this conversation with us. Um, I'm really glad we all got the opportunity to talk about this article because I'm kind of newer to reading McLuhan and I already just see with kind of the base that I have from this article from a little bit of understanding media that how important Martin McLuhan is to this conversation and so I'm super excited to dive into that more and then relate it to some more practical application into our daily lives and so we encourage people to look into the course sign up for it there's four different tiers all on the Theory Underground website. And yeah, thank you again for having us.
Yeah, that's really wonderful. It's uh, theory-underground.com. Click on courses. The rest is self-explanatory. Hopefully, uh, register with the site. Make sure to look at your spam folder because uh, a lot of times the confirmation email goes there. But the 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 thing I think I want to like leave people to think about um, that I was kind of hinting on when I talked about setting our expectations more based on reality in terms of like our survival. Um, yeah, it's good to do extreme things like get rid of your smartphone and just use a flip phone for a while. Um, that's something both Anne and I have experienced, have experimented with on our own at various points. It's, it's good to experiment with all kinds of things. Uh, and obviously nowadays people experiment with diets and various exercises routines all the time. This is what podcasts tend to focus on, but what I want to leave people with to think about is that a lot of these like ideals we have of like reading books in some traditional way, et cetera, some of them might be unrealistic expectations. Now, obviously we're keeping the books alive, right? We, we at philosophy portal and theory underground, we believe in it. Um, but I, I'm, I'm starting to think that in some ways, instead of just being like, oh, I'm so distracted. I'm trying to learn how to focus. I'm trying to learn how to focus. I'm trying to learn how to focus like I've been for the last 10 years. Instead being like, I'm hyper distracted. And I've developed some strategies for learning anyway. Not so that I can become a person who's not hyper distracted, but so that I can be a hyper distracted person and still learn, right? And so part of this is like trying to understand what we are now not necessarily so that we can become who we were supposed to be or who we actually supposedly were in the past. Um, I don't know. That's just something I want to leave people with so that we're not just seen as people who are romanticizing old texts. Um, I do believe that texts are important, but we can listen to books now. That's different. You know what I mean? And it kind of brings us back to the orality of texts that was there in the medieval times when you would sit with the master who reads the book and you would take the notes, right? Now I'm washing the dishes while I'm listening to books or lectures. Um, and maybe it's not as good, but maybe there's also something that is good about that. Something that lays a radical groundwork for something beyond a class society where some people are supposed to read and other people are not supposed to think about big ideas, but are just supposed to work. So thanks so much for having us on Cadell. All right. With that, as Dave said, theory-underground.com courses. The rest should be self-explanatory. And again, links will be all in the description. So thanks so much, Dave. Thanks so much, Anne. This has been Digital Liter Literacy and Critical Media Theory, a little window into that course through a conversation about Marshall McLuhan. And I hope everyone has a great evening. And now a quick message from our sponsors. Just kidding. This will be neither quick nor from any corporate or state sponsorship. What follows is a description of Theory Underground, a thank you to its patrons, information about the upcoming tour, and three brand new courses that you might want to enroll in. Stay for the whole thing to get promo codes to save on those courses or information about the financial aid scholarship. Theory Underground is a philosophy lecture course gated social media site and publishing house by and for working class intellectuals and renegade academics. The subject matters dealt with at Theory Underground are the most important yet neglected for understanding ourselves, the world, 
and ways of possibly changing it. Because we have no corporate or state sponsors, only a small band of patrons, everything in this first year of operation helps immensely. Special thank yous to Bert, Nance, Marilyn, Carl, and Adam for your help in the $50 per month patron tier. If you want to help but the $50 tier is too much, consider donating towards meals and gasoline via Venmo or PayPal. The gasoline is for our countrywide tour of the U.S., where we aim to meet with supporters of this effort and do events to draw in new people who do not necessarily belong to marketing demographics predetermined by the attention economy. We will be giving lectures, leading discussions, and promoting several brand new books. Our goal is to only go to towns and cities where we have personal invitations from at least one person. We are doing this underground style, which for the hardcore punk scene in the US meant coming for long enough to get to know the area and do multiple events, not this modern treadmill of a new city each night in an attempt to maximize fame and profit. If you are interested in being a host, guide, or volunteer, then please fill out the form at https colon forward slash forward slash theory hyphen underground.com forward slash us hyphen tour hyphen 2023. In an attempt to utilize the resources made publicly available, we will be using libraries for most of our events. So if you have a local library card and can reserve a space for us, we would most appreciate it. Alternatively, some of you might have access to pretty epic venue spaces. Just let us know ahead of time. Now for the courses. The three upcoming courses are What is Sex, Digital Literacy and CMT, Critical Media Theory, and Being in Time. All courses at Theory Underground are available after the fact on demand, but some people get a lot more out of doing it live with a cohort. If you are looking to think deeply about the devices we have become reliant on while experimenting with new ways of reclaiming your attention span and relationship with yourself and others, then check out Digital Literacy and Critical Media Theory, a course that is structured to combat the attention economy while strategically using some of its tools to help us gain a freer relationship to our devices. If interested, an introduction to this course will be shared at the end of this video. Just make sure to click on it. The lectures for this course take place on the second Sunday of every month for six months, starting in May. If you sign up at Tier 3, you also get access to the Recovery Group component, which also meets once per month. Enroll with promo code CMTEARLYBIRDYT before May 13th for 20% off. If you are frustrated by the discourse revolving around gender ideology, left and right, then join us in thinking deeper about sex. Cadell Last of Philosophy Portal is joining up with Theory Underground to teach Alenka Zupanchik's What is Sex? One of the most succinct and cutting-edge works of theory dealing with the topic. Zupanchik is one of the Slovenian circle's most incisive critics of both naive progressivism and reactionary tendencies when it comes to thinking about the relationship between sex, culture, and subjectivity. If interested, watch Three Reasons to Read What is Sex, which will be shared on screen at the end of this video. What is Sex begins in May and goes through June, meeting for four lecture sessions and, surprise, you will actually get to meet Alenka Zupanchik herself. Use promo code WHATISSEXEARLYBIRDYT before May 7th for 20% off. And just so you know, everybody, don't stress the capitalization. I just make it that way so it's more readable. It's not case sensitive. 
Being in Time is one of the most notorious, profound, and difficult works of philosophy from the last 200 years. Its deconstruction of modernity and fundamental challenge to scientism is a prerequisite rite of passage for any thinker who wants to seriously engage with continental philosophy, social theory, or world change. In this course, you will learn about what Heidegger means by being, being in the world, Dasein, being unto death, and so many other crucial developments. But more important than all these buzzwords is just taking on this work itself and wrestling with the text. Doing so will rapidly accelerate your reading comprehension abilities and simultaneously challenge some of your most deep-seated presuppositions. As before, an introductory video to this course is shared on the end screen of this video or can be accessed from the links in the description. Being in Time Division 1 starts in June and ends July 22nd. Division 2 begins August 19th and goes through October. To sign up for Division 1 today, use the promo code BEINGINTIMEEARLYBIRDYT before the end of May for 20% off. If you feel obstructed by the cost of these courses, then we have good news. But before getting into the financial aid info, why are there even price tags at all, much less tiered pricing? First, because some people just want to audit, whereas others want constructive critical feedback or even one-on-one -on -one sessions. The tiers exist so that you can get the value you are seeking while compensating me, Dave, fairly for the time and energy required. Second, the prices set for these courses aim to make Theory Underground sustainable, meaning that it will bring in enough to pay for the costs of the operation, including my personal bills since I want to be a co-earner in the household when my soon-to-be wife and I start a family. <laughs> Thirdly, <laughs> Thirdly, people tend to take the things they pay for more seriously, and we want you to get the most out of this experience. With those reasons aside, we do not seek to exclude anyone who is struggling just to get by. We have a financial aid scholarship option for people who are currently between jobs or who live in a country on a cheap currency like many of you who watch from Thailand, India, Mexico, or Poland. To name a few of the residents of some of the people who have already received financial aid scholarships in the last couple of months. Because I know what trying to study theory under the stresses of housing insecurity and poverty is like, the scholarship was set up during the first month of operation. Simply fill it out at https colon forward slash forward slash theory hyphen underground dot com forward slash scholarship. Last but not least, stay tuned for the Theory Underground app coming soon to an app store near you on your phone. Yeah, and seriously, thank you for listening or watching to this point. And uh, yeah. Thanks. We look forward to taking these courses with you. Bye.